Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. I don't know if I'm quite ready to share a video in my bra on TikTok, but I have to say, I think that TikTok came out funny. What? Okay. So, what? and we we tend to say comedy trumps everything. That's our rule, yes. right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know. I, I don't think I've i I don't think I'm quite there yet as far as comfortability in in sharing. What do you think? You you thought it was funny, right? Well, I did. I thought the TikTok itself was hilarious, and I always enjoy seeing you know That's, you scantily clad. That's enough. But um, yeah, what was the TikTok about? You had a shopping experience. So we were staying at a hotel, and we had gone to a, a local shopping establishment to to get some things that I forgot to pack because I'm historically terrible at packing. <laughs> anyway. Um, and I went to buy some pajama bottoms and I found some that I liked and I looked at the lady who was working and I held them up and I said, I like these. What do you think? An extra large? And she looked me up and down and went, at least. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, Oh, wow. That's fine. You know, things run differently. Maybe, Uh, you know, absolutely. But then I got them back to the hotel and they, I could fit two of me in these. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know what she was trying to imply, ma'am. That reminds me of when I was, uh, we were at the, at the uh, liquor store not long ago. And uh, somebody asked us for our IDs. Usually they never ask me, you know, it's just you. (laughs) But they asked both of us and I handed my uh, driver's license over to him and they looked at it and went, Jesus Christ. (laughs) Yeah, that was fun. (laughs) And I said, watch your mouth, cashier. I got, wow, you don't look that old the other day, which I think was meant to be a compliment. (laughs) Sure. Also, like, what am I, a thousand? Leave me alone. (laughs) Jeez Louise. 
One of the things that I love about doing the Box of Oddities is that it, that's a pretty big umbrella. There's a lot of weird, odd, unusual, or just interesting things that can fit in the Box of Oddities. Sure. But this one fits perfectly. I've always been fascinated with Victorian-era daredevils. It's a very specific thing to be fascinated uh, with. Uh-huh. Especially those crazy people that went over Niagara Falls in a barrel. Wearing a stripy swimsuit. Yep. Well, the first person to go over the falls was not in a barrel. Did you know this? The first person simply jumped off the friggin' waterfall 175 feet wow. off Horseshoe Falls of the Niagara River on the Canadian side of the border. And he had no protective gear. But but I do, like you mentioned, I picture him uh, jumping over the falls in one of those old-timey striped bathing suits uh, that went down to the knees. And then, you know, he was sporting like a big handlebar mustache and a, and a straw hat. Yeah, and had a walking stick, inexplicably. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and had a jaunty stride. So it was October of 1829. His name was Sam Patch. And he survived. But it was more than 70 years, seven decades would go by before somebody attempted to go over the falls again, and this time in the barrel, in a barrel for the very first time. Now, what is the purpose of the barrel? I guess they just thought it would protect them somehow from the tons of crushing water. I'm, I'm not sure. Describe to me what you think the first person who went over the falls in a barrel looked like in your mind when you picture it. What do you think? Um, I think of a scrappy young lady, kind of like uh, main character in uh, Fried Green Tomatoes, whatever her name was. The, the one that's kind of like the scout of Fried Green Tomatoes. Not the Kathy Bates character. Drink <laughs> <laughs> Kathy Bates now, like... In a barrel? Oh, jeez. <laughs> no. Uh... <laughs> well, you're on the right track. It, it was a woman. It was a 63-year-old school teacher named Annie Edson Taylor. Oh, wow. She became the first person to su- successfully plunge over Niagara in a barrel on October 24th, 1901. Annie was a widow. Her husband had died in the Civil War. Oh. At the time, she was living in New York, but had started moving all over the country, finally settling in Bay City, Michigan in the year 1898, where she opened the city's first dance studio. Nice. So in July of 1901, she was sitting in her kitchen, reading a magazine. She came across an article about the Pan American Exposition in Buffalo, and it was already going on. Uh, and would go on until like November, sometime in November. And the reason that Buffalo had been chosen was because of the growing popularity of the enormous waterfalls that, of course, are located on the New York, Upper New York State and Canadian border. Now, this event is similar to like a World's yeah. Fair kind of thing. Sure. Okay. Annie, at the time, was living on pension money that she received because of her husband's death in the Civil War. And it wasn't really enough to live on. She was kind of strapped for cash. So she wanted to be, and and she also wanted to be famous. So she started thinking about what she could do while this huge event was in town, something that she could exploit this event, make a little money and make herself famous. And she came up with what she thought was the perfect idea. She would go over Niagara Falls in a barrel. She chose her birthday to pull off this stunt. The date was October 21st, 1901, She told the press at the time that she was in her early 40s, but researching genealogical records, 
it shows that she was significantly older, 63, in fact. So with the help of two assistants, they designed a large barrel for her to plunge over the falls in. Now, this wasn't just a typical barrel that you find that they would have found in the alley behind the store of a kindly old grocer. It was a custom wooden pickle barrel, five feet high, a little more than three feet in diameter. And for the size, it it didn't weigh that much, about 160 pounds. It was simply constructed of slats made from white oak and held together with those iron bands. What do they call those things? Staves? Well, she lined the inside with a mattress to cushion the blow and installed a leather harness that would keep her from bouncing around too much on the inside of the barrel as it plummeted off the edge of the falls. They also put a 200-pound anvil in the bottom of the barrel. Now, that seems somewhat counterintuitive. Ah, you're going to put a 200-pound anvil in something that you want to float, but it was used as ballast to keep the barrel as upright as possible when it went over the falls. I don't think I would have done that, but I wouldn't have gone over the falls in a barrel, so. Annie even did a test run. Two days before going over the falls herself, you're not going to like this, she sent the barrel over the falls with her cat in it, Uh, but you'll be glad to know, sweetie, the cat survived and wasn't injured. In fact, there's a photo of her. It's probably the most famous photo of her posing next to her barrel after that test plunge with her cat perched on top of the barrel looking surprisingly calm. Annie's a dick. Now, there was a big pushback on her actually performing this stunt. As it got closer, people started to get really nervous. Her manager tried to talk her out of it. Uh, He was afraid that if she did, in fact, perish... He would be prosecuted for manslaughter in not just the United States, but Canada as well. So he wasn't so much concerned about her well-being as he was about um, international litigation. Got it. In fact, even the day of the event, right up until the point where she was getting in the barrel, her crew tried to talk her out of it because they felt like they were actually assisting in Annie's suicide. But at 4 p.m., she climbed into her barrel with the help of her assistants and she was sealed inside with a bicycle pump. I guess they pumped in as much air as they could to keep the thing as buoyant as possible. Uh. Thousands of people watched as they pushed the barrel out into the current. The barrel bobbed up and down as it slowly approached Horseshoe Falls on the Canadian side. It was then grabbed by the raging rapids and quickly pulled toward the falls and shot out over the edge. It was said that people lost view of the barrel because it just disappeared into the mist. And it didn't just go over and go down with the water. It shot out like 30 feet from the top of the falls and just disappeared into the mist. Within a couple of minutes, the barrel bobbed out from under the falls, completely intact, and started drifting downstream. And now it came to a rest when it bobbed up against a rock in the river and people rushed to the barrel. They had a little bit of difficulty, but were able to pull Annie Taylor out. She was relatively unscathed. The first thing she said when she was pulled out of the barrel was, quote, I prayed every second I was in the barrel, except for a few seconds after the fall when I went unconscious. It's a pretty tough lady. She was a bit sore and understandably somewhat in shock and had a small cut on her head, but otherwise was totally unhurt. In fact, 
The cut in her head happened when they pulled her out of the barrel. Oh. <laughs> she whacked her head on the edge of the barrel when they were pulling her out. Even though she became the first person to go over the falls in a barrel and survive, it didn't really pay off the way that she had hoped. She had a souvenir stand where she would pose for photos and charge for that. And she had little booklets that told the story of her life that she sold for 10 cents a piece. Uh, but her lecture circuit never really materialized. They said that she really didn't have the charisma and the stage presence to pull it off. Also, I would imagine that story isn't very long. I wouldn't think so. Annie died in 1921 at the age of 82. She's buried in a section of Niagara Cemetery alongside a group of fellow stunters. I remember reading something about that a while ago where there is a whole section in that cemetery of people who have perished going over the falls or trying to do some sort of stunt involving Niagara Falls, walking across it on a tightrope, you know, those kind of things. But even though she didn't achieve the riches that she was hoping for, her legacy lived on. It inspired more people to repeat her stunt. Between 1901 and 1995, 15 people have gone over the falls, 10 of them surviving. Not all of them used barrels, though. Among those who perished was Jesse Sharp in 1990, who went over the falls in a kayak. Oh. And then Richard Overcracker who in 1995 went over the falls on a jet ski. Neither of those people survived. But it took 10 years before the second person attempted to go over a fall, the falls in a barrel after Annie did. It was on July 25th, 1911, a man named Bobby Leach attempted the stunt. Bobby was from Cornwall, England, and uh, he, he was a circus performer and a daredevil. He had a great name for a stunter, didn't he? Bobby Leach. For short, did he come to the States to go over the falls? Yes. Yeah, he came all the way from, uh, from the UK to go over the falls. His goal was to become the second person and the first man to go over Horseshoe Falls in a barrel. Now, this time, an oak pickle barrel wasn't used. He had designed a cylindrical steel barrel with wooden bumpers on each end. It was specifically made to survive the plunge off the falls. He strapped himself into the harness and was set adrift at the mouth of the Chippewa Creek at about 2.55. Bobby was about 54 years old at the time. Okay. Leach, in his barrel, began racing down the river, picking up steam, when it struck a large rock and tore the front bumper off of his uh, barrel. The impact cut Leach's head, but the barrel continued racing toward the lip of Horseshoe Falls. It catapulted over the edge at almost the center of the falls, at 3.13 p.m., a reporter for the Daily Record described the moment this way, quote, As the barrel approached the brink, the multitude of voices hushed, as if by magic, and the silence was intense as the fearful plunge was made. Not a sound was heard except for the roar of the cataract, until, There he is! was shouted by dozens of voices as the barrel reappeared in the seething, bubbling waters below, some little distance below the falls. At this point, no one knew if Bobby was still alive. His barrel swept past the Ontario power plant, which, by the way, the building still stands there. It was at that point that his barrel got caught up in an eddy, and the barrel swirled around and around and around in a circle for about a half an hour. Oh, jeez. 
That must have been unpleasant. That's not what I want to deal with after I've plunged off the falls in a steel cylinder. It kept spinning until a man named Fred Bender, who worked at the power plant, grabbed a rope. His fellow employees held one end while he, he, I can't believe he did this. He tied the rope around his waist and jumped into the water with his clothes on, swam out to the barrel that was spinning around in this foaming eddy. He grabbed hold of the barrel and his co-workers pulled him and the barrel ashore. Wow, that's brave. When they got it on land, they pounded on the barrel and they waited for a response and Leach hammered back. The Daily Record goes on to say, quote, those around the barrel took off their hats and let forth a mighty cheer, which was instantly answered by one of greater volume from the masses assembled above on the falls when they understood that Bobby was alive. Bobby, however, was pretty banged up. He had a gash on his forehead. He was horribly bruised. His kneecaps were broken. He had a cut on the right side of his face, and he broke his jaw. As they pulled him out, he was in great pain. And the first thing he asked for was some oxygen and then a cigar. (laughs) Kind of counterintuitive. I'm sure he didn't light the cigar around the oxygen. Otherwise, the story would have a very different ending. He was so badly banged up, in fact, that he spent six months in the hospital recovering from his injuries that he sustained from this uh, stunt. After being released from the hospital, he spent a great deal of time touring and talking about how he survived such a dangerous and terrifying ordeal. He then slipped on an orange peel and died. No. Seriously. In a sad twist of irony. Fifteen years after his stunt, he was in Auckland, New Zealand. He was just walking down the street, and he slipped on an orange peel and fell and broke his leg. Oh, my God. An infection set in and gangrene developed. His leg had to be amputated. Sadly, Bobby Leach died while in surgery. Oh. He was buried in Auckland at the Hillsborough Cemetery. His gravestone reads, in loving memory of Bobby Leach, World famous by his trip over Niagara Falls in a barrel. Died 28th April, 1926. Age 69 years. R.I.P. Goodness. Can you imagine, you know, Bobby passes away. He gets to the pearly gates. He realizes that he survived going over the falls in a barrel. Right. And then dies when he slips on, a, on an orange peel. Really? I remember uh, you talked about how in New York City there was a big problem with banana peels, and that's kind of how banana peels became so ubiquitous with humor, and there was a big thing because people were just throwing their trash everywhere, and, (laughs) you know, so I guess that was the same, but with orange peels in Auckland. My source information, the Exchange Niagara Falls, Wikipedia, Atlas, Obscura, and History.com. Well, that was interesting. I just love old-timey stuntmen and women, or stunt people, or whatever. Stunt folk. Stunt folk. I love that. It reminds me of the term circus folk, which to me is endearing. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids, and they live about 3,000 miles away, and my daughter is expecting a child, and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame and since i can't be there to experience it with her it's the next best thing and speaking of mothers if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life aura frames are beautiful wi-fi connected digital picture frames it allows you to share and display unlimited photos it's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the aura app 
And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura frames, and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's a-U-R-A frames.com. Use code oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A frames.com and use code oddities at checkout. And you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? <sighs> Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. And now, that thing in the middle. Did you know, back in the early 20th century, Pennsylvania Germans considered it bad luck to take a bath or change your clothing between Christmas and New Year's Day. In addition, if you changed your underwear between the holidays, quote, you will be filled with boils. Happy Holidays! Jason sent us an email, curator at theboxofoddities.com, listening to Box 335. Since having weight loss surgery two years ago, I'm down from 340 to 190 pounds, but I have terrible gas. I'm listening to JG tell fart facts and laughing because a few weeks ago, I went to a new chiropractor because of some of the pains due to the weight loss. She did a few x-rays. Turns out, gas shows up on x-rays. In fact, she said I had so much gas, she couldn't see my coccyx. Oh my goodness. Anyway, she's taking care of me and trying to release some of that gas. Bless her heart. Wow. Now, gas can be so incredibly painful. I, I know from experience, I missed out on burritos one time. 
you and I were supposed to meet people for dinner, and I was like, I can't go. I have too much gas. And I was just crying and laying on the floor and rolling around in agony. That happened to me when we were on that long nine-hour flight to Spain. Oof. And it has to do with cabin pressure or sure. something. So we, we were either going up or coming down. I guess it would have been coming down. And um, the, the gas in my intestines started to expand. And I thought I was going to explode like Mr. Creosol. I'm glad you didn't. Yeah. BB wrote us, okay, I don't know if y'all will read this, but I swear I experienced a mild glitch while listening to you all. I'm late in the game, and I'm currently listening to episode 162. A few episodes ago, I started an episode I hadn't finished, and y'all's voices were completely different. I was listening in the shower, so I thought maybe the echo had a weird effect. Anyway, when I got out, I tried listening again, and Jethro's voice in particular sounded so different, like younger and not as nice. Anyway, I asked my daughter if it sounded different, and she said, no, it sounds the same as always. Now I listen, and you're all back to normal. So maybe a glitch... Maybe a stroke. I don't know. <laughs> Just thought it might be weird enough to be interesting. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah, it, it, that's evil Jethro from a alternate universe. Oh, you think so? <laughs> Occasionally he breaks through and I have to stuff him back in his own universe. It's very days of our lives. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We put the hoe in holidays. This is The Box of Oddities. Raymond Orteg was a French-American hotel owner in New York City in the early 20th century. His support of local charities and causes made him a leading figure in New York City's French community. He was a real philanthropist, and that made him kind of higher up on the social status. Plus, he was gaining social status from the fact that he was very successful at his job. He came to the country at like 12 with like eight francs in his pocket and then ended up owning a bunch of hotels. And francs, by francs, you mean pieces of money, not not sausages. That's correct. Yeah, but he it's kind of the American dream. 
1919, he attended a dinner in NYC organized by the Aero Club of America honoring the American flying ace, Eddie Rickenbacker. Many of the speeches involved Franco-American friendships, and Rickenbacker said that he was looking forward to the day that the two countries were linked by air. So Ortigue was inspired by this speech, and he wrote a letter to Alan Ramsey Hawley, president of the Aero Club of America, on the behest of Aero Club secretary Augustus Post. Gentlemen, he wrote. As a stimulus to the courageous aviators, I desire to offer, through the auspices and regulations of the Aero Club of America, a prize of $25,000 to the first aviator of any allied country crossing the Atlantic in one flight, from Paris to New York or New York to Paris. All other details are in your care. Yours very sincerely, wow. Raymond Ortigue. Twenty-five grand. A lot of dough back then. In 1919, heck yeah. Heck yeah. His offer was accepted, and the Aero Club was like, yes, let's do this. So they went on to set up like the formal structure. They were organizing it. Right. And the prize was to be valid for five years. Well, this was a huge thing at the time. The Daily Mail newspaper, for example, had awarded 1,000 francs for the first cross-channel flight in 1909 and a 10,000-franc award given in 1919 to Alcock and Brown for the first nonstop transatlantic flight between North America and Ireland. Unfortunately, in that five-year term, nobody won the prize. So Ortigue reissued the prize on June 1st, my dad's birthday, 1925, by depositing 25000 in negotiable securities at the Bryant Bank, with the awarding put under the control of the seven-member board of trustees. So the money was in escrow, just waiting to be won. Just waiting to be won. Oh, that's tempting. In 1926, the first serious attempt on the prize was made by a team led by French flying ace René Fonck, backed by Igor Sikorsky, the aircraft designer. But the aircraft was overloaded, and it crashed during oh, takeoff, no. killing two of the four on board. Ooh. And again, it's easy to forget how dangerous early aviation was, because we fly all the time. It's like NBD, hopping on a flight. We're just going to fly over the ocean. Whatever. But people were constantly dying. Especially when you consider back when he originally offered that reward, most of the aircraft was like open cockpit. Yeah. You were just flying out in the, in the elements, all nimbly bimbly. By 1927, four groups were known to be preparing attempts on the prize. Three were from the U.S. and one was from France. This must have been a lot like the race to the moon in yeah, the 60s. I would think exactly. Charles Nungesser and Francois Colley were preparing for an east-west crossing in Louis-sur-Blanc. Apparently, the east-west crossing was considered more difficult than the west-east crossing. I don't know why. The jet person. stream would be going west to east, right? I don't know. Be going from... North America. I don't to, know how that works at yeah. all. I don't understand where wind comes from. <laughs> Can we just <laughs> discuss that? <laughs> well, I know where my wind comes from. Coley, age 45, was a World War I veteran and a recipient of the French Legion of Honor, who had been making record-breaking flights all around the Mediterranean Sea. So 
he's doing pretty okay as far as piloting goes. His co-pilot, 35-year-old Charles Nungesser, was 35, a highly experienced flying ace with over 40 victories, the third highest in France. Wow. So again, both of them doing pretty good piloting. They were to be flying a Lavasseur PL-8 biplane, which was a single bay, wood and fabric covered biplane. Oh my God. With an open cockpit. Of course. Yeah. It carried no radio. It relied only on celestial navigation. The plane was called Luiso Blanc, the White Bird, and it was painted white. But also it was thought that in the wake of this world war, the two wanted to show that aviation was something that could be a peacetime activity. They were to depart on the 8th of May, 1927, from Le Bourget Field in Paris. A crowd of reporters, spectators, and celebrities would be seeing them off. The intended flight path was a great circle route that would take them across the English Channel, over the southwestern parts of England and Ireland, across the Atlantic to Newfoundland, and then south over Nova Scotia to Boston, and finally to a water landing in New York. And they couldn't stop in Newfoundland or anything. Along the way, they had to just... It was nonstop. Nonstop. That was part of the, the rules of the prize. Though the two had agreed that if when they reached that place in France before they went over the channel, Mm -hmm. if they decided like things weren't feeling quite right, if they didn't think that they were off to a good start, that that's where they would turn around. Smart. They did have some difficulty taking off, though. The plane was heavier than usual, and it barely cleared the treetops. And of course, the spectators were like, oh, but then they kind of regained their altitude and off they went. Four military aircraft accompanied the flight on the first leg. And there are pictures and films from the time that show that the aircraft's altitude was back to normal. The landing gear was released as they flew over the Seine in order to reduce the weight of the aircraft. Wow. Yeah, kind of like they do with rocket ships. Right, the first stage. Goodbye. Take that, Ocean. How do you like that litter? And of course, they were planning on a water landing in New York. So it didn't matter. The flight from takeoff to touchdown was expected to take roughly 40 hours. 40 hours in the air. In the air. Open cockpit, yep. no lights, no instrumentation, yep. navigating by the stars, yep. no place to pee, nope. no peanuts, no, can I get you a Coke? Nothing. Nothing. Sounds like Frontier. They were spotted over France after they had traveled about 108 nautical miles and uh, over an hour and a half. So they were moving a little bit slower than they had expected, but not so much that it was concerning. At approximately 7.15, a British submarine noticed that a plane was over England. And planes at this time weren't everywhere all the time. So when someone noticed a plane, you pretty much knew which plane it was, which is a neat thought. Yeah, for sure. A few hours later, it was spotted over the cliffs of Ireland. Now, the French Navy, I guess, were supposed to be offering position updates as well as the plane Mm -hmm. crossed the channel. Mm -hmm. But it seems that they were watching the wrong area, which kind of sucks. Once uh, in Newfoundland, 12 people in Newfoundland claimed that they heard the plane pass overhead. Okay. But they didn't see it. All right. By this time, crowds of people are gathering in New York to watch this historic arrival. 
Tens of thousands of people have crowded in Battery Park in Manhattan to try to get a good view of the Statue of Liberty, where this the plane was supposed to be landing how in the dra- water. How dramatic right? is that? Breaking records, flying overseas, bam, 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 heroes, right? Ticker tape parades. Right, exactly. See? The next day, a French newspaper reported that the duo had successfully landed. But this was a misprint. Hmm. They'd not landed. The Lueso Blanc had carried enough fuel for around 42 hours of flight. And it wasn't expected that they would take any longer than 40 hours to get there. So plenty of fuel. But once more than 42 hours had passed, it became clear to those gathered in New York that the plane wasn't going to arrive. The French were outraged at the newspaper that had reported erroneously that the pilots had arrived in New York. There were demonstrations in the streets. Mm, mm. And a flurry of telegrams were sent to ships to search for any sign of the aircraft. But that actually wasn't until over a full day later. And by then, the weather had changed, and the Navy wasn't able to carry out aerial patrols, and they gave up the search on the evening of the 12th of May. An international search was launched as well, looking for the two pilots. Aviation Digest sponsored a well-known pilot search for the area between New York and Newfoundland, For nine days. Wow. The Canadian government, search and rescue organizations, they sent out two search aircraft, one of which crashed. But other than the landing gear jettisoned over France, no part of the plane or its pilots have ever been found. Really? So the last time it was seen with eyeballs was Ireland. Yes. There were were 12 reports from people in Newfoundland saying they heard the plane. And a blueberry farmer in Maine said that he heard the plane. Interesting. It had 42 hours worth of fuel. Yes. But it was reported that it had difficulty taking off. And it was moving slower than expected. Exactly. So that, to me, suggests that it was overloaded still, even though they jettisoned the landing gear and it was burning fuel faster than they thought. And so maybe it wasn't 42 hours, maybe it was 38 hours worth of fuel. And yeah, they they must have gone down somewhere between Newfoundland and New York City. A lot of people think it was Maine. Really? Our home state. There are many rumors concerning the aircraft's disappearance. Of course there are. Including a theory that the aviators had been shot down by rum runners aboard the Amistad. What? Yeah. What? There are also rumors that Nungesser and Coley were living with indigenous peoples in Canada. Hmm. In 1930, claims circulated that the engine had been located in Maine, but nothing has ever been confirmed. Stories emerged from 1948 that caribou hunters and fur trappers had found aircraft wreckage in Great Gull Pond in Newfoundland. They jettisoned their landing gear. So assuming that this was a controlled landing, they Mm. ran out of fuel and they were just kind of trying to land Mm. in a controlled way, they would definitely try to do it on water. Mm Mm-hmm. And definitely try to do it on water that's close to the shoreline. If that's the case, it should be relatively easy to find, one would think. One of the thoughts is that the part of Maine that a lot of researchers have looked at is chock-a-block with many ponds 
that are oh. very shallow. Okay. And so if the plane came down, if they saw a body of water and were like, oh, we can totally land in that, mm-hmm. but it was too shallow, basically the plane would have broken up into itty bitty bits. And because it was made of wood and fabric, they would have sunk slash disintegrated. Well, you would think so. Plus, Maine is 90% forested. I know, it's crazy. There is any possibility that you could be anywhere in Maine and no one would be able to find you. Now, if they went down in fresh water in the state of Maine, that water is really cold and there could be some remnants of the uh, of the aircraft that have survived. In fact, there's a whole industry now that has retrieved old logs from the rivers by the uh, by the paper mills, mm-hmm. the old paper mills in Maine that have been at the bottom that, that became waterlogged and sunk to the bottom of the river nearly 200 years ago. We're talking first growth timber that's really valuable. Because the water is so cold, it's perfectly preserved. So maybe there's a chance that one day maybe we'll have an answer. And in the decades since, there have been a lot of organizations, including the organization started by Clive Cussler, RIP, who started looking for shipwrecks and then became very interested in the white bird. I recognize that name. Yeah, he's an author or was an author. Oh, okay. Awesome. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, gotcha. All right. <laughs> But so far, uh, even though there have been lots of clues, no definitive clue. Fascinating. I got my information from Unsolved Mysteries on Reddit, Wikipedia, obviously, Boston Magazine, and fearoflanding.com. Hey, thanks to those of you who have joined us in the uh, Order of Freaks on Patreon and are supporting the podcast. Stephanie, Jameson, Kat, Kelly, Cindy, Astra, JC, Adrian, Wowen, Beck, and Amethyst. Lots of benefits for joining the Order of Freaks. Ad-free episodes, bonus episodes, monthly Zoom meetings. I hate the word meeting because it makes it sound like we expect something from you. (laughs) We do have one coming up, though. Yeah, we do. And we appreciate you so much. You guys make it possible. Thanks for hanging out with us. We'll see you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you. And its fate is in your hands. The box of oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com On Facebook at Facebook.com slash Box of Oddities Podcast On Twitter at Box of Oddities And Instagram at Box of Oddities Podcast Copyright 2022 All rights reserved Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here And I'm Gabby And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. Do you 
love history, but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.